a lot of our customer segment really thinks of the long-term commitment to buy something, not as a hedge to, to take that risk off the table, mm-hmm. but they view it as incremental risk. So we try to solve for that. And I think we've successfully solved for it by scaling down the size of our installations with respect to customers' consumption. We don't want to produce something that, you know, built that is over 100% or 100% of the customer's needs. We want it to be easy for them to make this long-term commitment. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Gabe Phillips, founder and CEO of Catalyst Power. Catalyst Power is an ESCO or energy service company, retail electricity provider, community solar aggregator, and solar and battery project developer for commercial and industrial businesses in the Northeast U.S. In addition, Gabe is a distance runner, musician, woodworker, father, husband, and thriver somehow on four to five hours of sleep per night. When I learned that, I mentioned, of course, we may need to have an intervention later on his sleep habits. Anyway, in this episode, we talked about the outsized benefits of doing hard things, how his customers view risks and risk mitigation when it comes to choosing things like solar batteries or microgrids, why a roll-up acquisition strategy made sense to launch his business, how he's able to get clean renewable power at cheaper prices than brown power for his customers. We also cover three of his favorite books on entrepreneurship, meditation, and the benefits of being uncomfortable. You may see a theme here. And a whole lot more. Hope you enjoyed and please give Gabe and Catalyst Power a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Gabe Phillips, founder and CEO at Catalyst Power. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. So we were talking before we pressed record, which by the way, I always hate saying that because it's just said so often. Anyway, it's true. People do talk on podcasts before press and record. And a couple of things came out, which I'll just kind of tease the audience with. If there are four-letter words dropped in the podcast, you know, you can't help it. You're a New Yorker, started working at age 13 and love to do hard things because often there's outsized return when we do hard things. So dot, 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 Gabe, uh, great starters for us. What in the world is Catalyst Power? Who do you serve? What kind of problem do you solve? Sure. Um, Catalyst Power is a, a decarbonization platform. We, we, we focus on energy supply in a lower carbon manner for specifically the mid-market independent business owner of the Northeastern quadrant of the U.S. So mid-market commercial and industrial end users are our target. And we supply them with regular way retail electricity. And then we 
bring them down the, the decarbonization path one step at a time. It's a journey for many of them because their mind share for their energy supply is, is minimal. You know, the type of business I'm referring to is, you know, is independent. They're not public companies. They don't have like a giant procurement department or sustainability officer or somebody focused on energy or commodity procurement, even if they're a heavy energy user relative to their output. They might be the CEO that makes these decisions or the CFO and that who ends that who's ended up talking to my my team or myself frequently. Um, a lot of multi-generational businesses, you know, where the grandfather started something, the father is still saddled with the decision the grandfather made 20 years ago, and the son is or daughter is pushing for some change to do something new. And there's that conflict there that we try to find ourselves in the middle of to help to bridge. And the start of that journey is just regular way, retail energy supply, and then a community solar subscription, which is like lighter touch. It's off-site solar. It only exists in a handful of markets, but they happen to be, you know, coinciding well with the Northeast where power prices are high and policy objectives are in line with our objective of decarbonization for the most part. Um, and so that alignment works well for, you know, our business model where we try to bring all of these solutions under one, under one tent to be a one-stop shop for the, the customer with very limited bandwidth to procure lower carbon energy. And then the next step along the journey after that lower touch community solar subscription is actually hosting something physical on site. And there's different ways that you can cut that. There's different pieces of equipment that could achieve the decarbonizing goal. But, you know, the four categories that an on-site solution can provide value to a customer in are typically immediate savings of some form, you know, monetary. Another monetary benefit is long-term budget certainty because there's usually some long-term contracted element to an on-site asset that us as the owner of that equipment need in order to make it financeable. Then there's the obvious, you know, decarbonization element, as long as it's renewable or a storage resource that can shift consumption from higher carbon intensity hours to lower carbon intensity hours. And then there's actually like the broader benefit of distributed resources out there of resiliency. So the utilities actually are supportive of these things that take away volume from them because they are a non-wire solution to meet many of their localized system-related needs. Um, and so there's like this broader societal benefit that one host in one area brings to their area. But also on-site resiliency, like from a battery, like you can ramp that thing up in a power outage. There's actual resiliency elements to it as well. So, you know, that that's sort of like the what we offer, you know, why we do it. And and I think it sort of speaks a bit to what you mentioned at the top, which is it's um we like to do hard things. This customer segment is not known for like deep penetration of distributed resources and renewables. So we've had to like package this suite of energy and decarbonization products for this customer segment in a way that's more palatable for them, that demystifies it, some of the overly complex elements of energy, the broader markets, but also like hosting, you know, an onsite resource and it being renewable in nature as well makes it even more complicated. Um, and so we've, we've called it our connected microgrid product because the customer remains connected to the overall system, remains connected to the grid, but we develop a, a, a micro generation asset. Again, technology agnostic. As long as it's decarbonizing and peaks with peak demand in some way naturally or via dispatch, that works for us and it works well for the customer. And we are actually able to unlock additional economic benefits as a retail supplier that a standalone distributed generation developer could never do. And so it just makes sense on the surface from that perspective to bring the businesses together, but it also you got to start with what the customer needs and they need a one stop to shop for these things. And starting there, it makes sense to bring these businesses together and 
finding these other ways that we benefit from it, like, you know, obviously are, are why the business works and functions economically. Right. So I think it's important to stress, you really are at least two different businesses in one, right? A retail electricity provider, which I'd like you to explain that a bit more in a second, because some folks like us in, in North Carolina don't live in that kind of world. And you're the distributed energy developer or owner of sort to make on-site improvements easier. Often those are different businesses. You brought them into one. So back on the retail... Sorry, this, there's a third. Um, yeah, yeah. That lighter touch product in the middle there, the community yeah. solar subscription. Subscription aggregation is a whole other business sure. as well. We, sure. we get subcontracted to by other aggregators to help bring our customers to their projects that they're representing. Um, and we were hired directly by some, uh, like Standard Solar is a customer of ours. We did a ribbon cutting last year with them on a project that we aggregated the customers for. So that's like a whole other standalone sure. business. But again, it, it makes sense to bring all under one umbrella. That's a great point. Right. So three, three businesses in one. So let's go back to the retail electricity provider. For those folks that don't, well, either don't live in a deregulated power market or those that do and think, how is it possible that I can have the same or lower cost power and it be renewable? Why isn't everyone doing this? Is this, is this real? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I mean, so deregulation, uh, you know, in the 90s, like, you know, kind of has rolled out across the country in a, in a patchwork. Um, you know, it wasn't dictated from the top down. Now, where it has occurred and regional transmission operators sprang up the coordination of physical power movements, the Federal Power Act allowed the creation of FERC, and FERC came in and started to create markets in all those areas and turned, you know, created wholesale power markets alongside the early days of deregulation when the utilities in some states unbundled their upstream generation from their downstream responsibilities of delivering commodity to a customer and ensuring the grid remained reliable. That was like the first stage of deregulation. And then once these markets formed and there was a way for like third parties to buy power, either from a physical you know, auction, basically, like the, the independent system operator runs like a, a daily auction for physical power or from third party market makers, like anyone else hedges other price risks in the world, right? There are other market makers of other types of commodities or instruments, derivatives, right, that, that you can buy and sell with third parties that just want to make you a market. Once all that was able to develop, that was enabled, then you could now have third parties offering physical supply themselves and using the grid owned and operated by the local utilities to deliver that power. So that's what deregulation really is with respect to, to retail choice. And I think that retail choice, that word, you know, used in conjunction with, with deregulation is very important. Because it's not only meant to deliver like benefit economically relative to what utility rates are. Utility rates are set in a patchwork of ways, state by state, even utility by utility. There's auctions that they run to procure power from wholesale market market makers, like I described before. And they do them in sort of these rolling long-term auctions. But then they only offer kind of one product to a customer in most cases. Like, here's our tariff rate for a year. We'll change it next year based on these auctions and the other procurement schedules that we have. Or in New York, the utilities are actually are, are totally variable price. They're wholesale market based. So if you're a New York based retail energy consumer, that's with the utility for supply. You own all the risk. You've got market based risk, whether you like it or understand it or not. So retail providers coming in to offer choices that met customers' needs, however varied they were, is really the key benefit in my mind of retail deregulation. 
when it came to the point of permitting third-party suppliers to participate. And so how, how about the part where, where folks say, how is it possible that I can get you know, cleaner, lower carbon power, which I thought cost more, but to get it at or below you know, the price for business as usual you know, power from the typical providers you know, on a grid? You know, the, the idea of, you know, of the length of time of a, of a commitment to buy something is key to that equation. You know, the zero commitment you provide to, the, to your utility, right? I could leave the utility whenever I want, or I could remain a, a customer. You sort of lends one premium to, to their price that if I commit to a solar provider to buy their power for 20 years or 25 years, there's obviously a very different risk premium associated with the delivery of that power for the seller in that case. I've got a contracted asset now with this customer for 20 years. Like I could offer that power for a lot less than a shorter term contract provider would have to offer it for because I've got locked in revenues for a long time. And that's where some of the big benefit price-wise comes from when a customer is contracting for renewables versus brown power and finding an economic benefit in doing so. But to be clear, you know, renewables don't actually come cheaper than non-renewables, like by definition. Like, I mean, if I had a brown power asset and I sold you power for 20 years, I could do it for cheaper than my renewable asset for 20 years. There's still a premium associated with renewables. And in some cases, incentives, both federal and state incentives, and in some cases, even more local than that, help to bridge some of that gap and bring down what levelized cost of power associated renewables are so that I can offer them below brown power. But like inherently, and then unfortunately still at the smaller scale asset size that we focus on, like below a megawatt typically in, in size and again, distributed in nature. So like at the customer site, not in a wholesale power plant, you know, connected to the high, high voltage system type of a configuration, you're dealing with more expensive cost of levelized power. Yeah, I think the way you explain sort of the first, the first part of that is, is one of the best ways I've ever heard it described, right? That if you're in a retail market, here's how you get cheaper clean energy. You commit to 20, somebody commits to 20 years. And with that certainty, that project owner gets whatever, cheaper financing, et cetera, to make the cost more affordable to the ultimate end user. I think for listeners who want to dig more into levelized cost of various forms of energy, uh, Lazard puts out these great, they put out, I think they still put out each fall, the levelized cost of energy reports for electricity, for storage, for green hydrogen, and great graphs, which which increasingly do, do show actually that that for larger systems, right, the unsubsidized cost levelized is getting to be cheaper than than brown, and, and that does that does the industry a huge disservice when they put that out because mm -hmm. everyone goes, oh, good, we're done, we're that's done. Right. The incentives did their job, we're done, but that's not the case. That's not the reality on the ground, right? Like where we need to put assets is not, you know, far from load. It's near load. Mm. And in fact, where we have lots of unused space, brownfield or rooftop is mm. at the point of consumption, not far away. And therefore, all project sizes in those applications are going to be small. And the levelized cost of power for those assets is way more expensive than the levelized cost of power of a 800 megawatt combined cycle gas plant somewhere that you know is, is connected to high voltage systems and then totally. brings you, load. You're right on. And I think I think folks who look at those reports still see the smaller systems. You know, those those graphs, those bars do show higher LCOE than yeah. the, the brown. It just bugs me that the headlines that I see in the paper sometimes are 
renewables are a parody. And I'm like, God, like only if they walk the day in my shoes. Yeah. Yeah. The same is true with, with so many headlines, right? We, we don't have time for nuance and details. We just, we have time for, <laughs> for headlines. Yeah. You talked about this market being a hard market. So, you know, mid-tier commercial and industrial in the Northeast, what parts of that, or maybe it's all parts, uh, make it harder uh, to, to reach or penetrate with, with clean energy solutions, do you think, Gabe? The independent business owner in America is like, I think, arguably the engine of our economy. I think many people would agree with that statement. It's, you know, the largest employer. It's also the largest owner of rooftop space mm. and represents one of the largest consuming groups of end users when you segment them out. And that is a massive opportunity to deploy renewables, both sure. solar and storage at the moment. And it's totally untapped right now. And the reason is small projects take a lot of the same effort, time, and cost to underwrite, finance, build, and then own and operate as larger projects do. And short, you know, there's enhanced economics associated with you know, smaller projects usually, and there should be, right? Because they're harder to do and you, you need to be compensated for that uh, accordingly. But really the, the, the biggest cost associated with that is not like the underwriting and the, you know, operating expense like that I said doesn't, you know, doesn't scale down like with project size. It's actually the sales cycle. It's getting a customer to agree to sign on the dotted line to host a project, either as a, a landlord to a project that's shipping the power elsewhere or um, as a direct off taker. And the biggest reason for that is that, that, that the long-term commitment that we talked about a moment ago, the 20-year commitment. I, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for 13 years now. And um, at the moment, I don't have an office. But whenever when I did, I never signed a lease longer than two years. That's indicative of like the type of decision-making time horizon most independent business owners need to bring to bear because there are uncertain times that you work through. And long-term commitments have, you know, even if they are a hedge to a current risk you have, it's very easy to perceive them as, a, as an incremental risk rather yep. than a nice long-term hedge to the risk that you bear when you wake up in the morning. That's a good point. And like I said before, we all bear wholesale power market risk, even in North Carolina. Like it's less acute for you and less like tracking with the movement in the wholesale power markets because of the fully regulated you know environment you're in. But in the Northeast, where utilities are setting rates annually, at a very minimum, you've got year-to-year -year power market exposure in New York, you've got day-to-day -day power market exposure as a utility customer. And then as a deregulated choice customer, you got whatever tenor you contracted to. That, that's risky bear. Mm. And whatever contract form you agreed to, like, did you get a price lock? Is it fixed price? Is it variable in some way? Is it an index? Like, there's lots of risk that you wake up in the morning with, like, as a retail consumer. Your market goes up, you're short. I like to sort of give everybody the definition of being long and short things. Like, sometimes that's elemental to the conversation, but you are short power when you wake up in the morning because the prices go up, you experience financial pain. Prices go down, you experience financial benefit. And if you don't do something to hedge that risk by entering into a long-term contract to procure that thing that you're short, then you're choosing to warehouse all the risk completely. And a lot of our customer segment really thinks of the long-term commitment to buy something, not as a hedge to, to take that risk off the table, mm -hmm. but they view it as incremental risk. So we try to solve for that and I think we've successfully solved for it by scaling down the size of our installations with respect to customers' consumption. We don't want to produce something that, you know, built that is over 100% or 100% of the customer's needs. 
we want it to be easy for them to make this long-term commitment. So we also like, you know, there's benefit to like leaving some unhedged load so that we could, as you know, the world evolves and someone invents like a fusion generator or something, or that produces, you know, free, you know, carbon neutral or carbon free electricity on the power of good vibes. Like we can pay for it, install it and own and operate it. And I think there's value to leaving some of, of that risk unhedged, at least now in this relatively early days of the technological advances that we're seeing on the renewable side, right? And so uh, that's how we approach it for our customers to make it more palatable. Um, and so far, that's been one successful tack that we've taken. Yeah, but it's really just the sales cycle is, is, is long and expensive. And so we have like five other things that we sell to customers so that we can remain solvent along that journey with them. Mm. And that they can, and we can remain relevant to them, and they look to us as um, as a resource with respect to what should they be thinking about in in now and in the future for their energy consumption, both you know brown power, you know not non renewable and and you know decarbonized uh, energy supply, um, and that's why we started with a retail energy business, and we actually started with other people's retail energy businesses. Frankly, we we decided to execute a roll up strategy to start off this business and get to as many customers as possible as early as possible. We felt the need to play the numbers game because of how opaque this is and, and how deep the knowledge gap is for most independent business owners um, in their energy procurements and specifically around renewables and hosting physical assets. So we, I guess I could sort of roll the clock back on Catalyst and give you like that, that evolution because it's, it's actually very important to understand like why, you know, why we started with that as, as our strategy. Maybe maybe before you go to that evolution, I think you mentioned, so a, lo a lot of great thoughts there. One, there's two ways you all can install, you know, solar batteries, let's say. And what, one is the host customer uses the, that power, those, the benefits of, say, storage directly on site. The other is their landlord, and I'm guessing you would lease, say, the roof space and the power goes back to the grid. Can you, or do you want to comment on which of those is the more typical sale, which of those kind of structures is is growing? I mean, I can just imagine based on your prior comments, the landlord solution is the easiest because if I'm that small business, I think, well, someone's going to own this damn building. It's a revenue stream, regardless of whether there's, you know, power to produce widgets in here or not. We have, again, surprisingly found that the fixed revenue stream associated with the lease even though it's less economic benefit for the customer, is viewed as a less risky commitment that they're making. Tying up their roof for 20 years or 25 years for my equipment is easier for a customer to agree to now at this earlier stage in their journey with us than committing to buy something from us for 20 years or 25 years. What if they might have committed to a price that they're now overpaying for at some point in the future, right? That's like... Again, even though it functions as a hedge, to risk they have right now is viewed as a risky decision to make. So we're actually seeing a lot of success leasing rooftops from people in markets where we can monetize the asset outside of their fence, sure. outside of their meter. And that has taken the form of small community solar projects in New York, smart projects in Massachusetts, which is another state that we're operating in, uh, where the power is sold to the utility under PURPA. And the environmental attributes are compensated to us for uh, from uh, the, the Massachusetts Smart Program. And in Connecticut, they have a buy-all program 
this NERS auction, um, or sorry, NRES auction that we're participating in where the power and the environmental attributes get sold to the utility. And in other states that we start operating in, different constructs are popping up every day. Like that's the thing, you have to have geographic diversity, um, both for the retail business and for the distributed generation side of our business, because these incentives like show up, they get depleted, they change. They, it's, a, it's a constantly moving tapestry of, of incentives for us to try to keep track of. And you gotta be there already with customers ready to serve them with these new products when the incentive structure emerges. Yep, yep. And I think just for listeners, if they are feeling confused by different states, different state programs, different acronyms by state, we're not going to go through all those right now, only to say, only to emphasize what you just said. Solar is a state-by-state market. Almost every single state has a different uh, incentive program. So, Gabe, again, I know we've got a pen on the board to go, kind of go back to your old roll-up strategy and the origin. Before we we go to the last part of our pod on kind of the you as the person leader here, I want to ask a question around, you got your three business lines, and it sounds like it's an evolution, right? Folks start with the retail power, then maybe community solar aggregation, and then maybe distributed solar in, or solar storage or microgrid installation. If I had to guess, I would I would say the the margins are likely smaller, but the dollar amounts are bigger, kind of for the top item. I'm not sure about the middle one, but maybe the margins are bigger for the the third, maybe more predictable long term revenue. It, w- whatever you want to say without divulging <laughs> your business strategy, how do you think about the various pieces there and their contribution to say you know your profit on a unit basis, right per sale? versus kind of aggregate, how they roll up as a contribution to your overall, say, top line? Retail electricity is the number one revenue driver. It's a thin, thinner margin on a risk-adjusted basis as compared with the other products that you, that you noted that we offer. But it's one that you can get to scale more quickly. And it's an ongoing delivery. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a continuous sale. You know, and assuming we can renew with that customer and they like the fact that we're communicating with them hyperactively about the opportunities that they could take advantage of that we also offer, they tend to renew with us for a long period of time. Our our churn is lower than industry average because of all the other things that we bring to bear. The community solar subscription for us as a a third-party aggregator, in in that case, not the installation owner, is only a one-time economic benefit for us. Very high margin, but it's not repeatable. Mm. Um, So it needs to be higher margin for it to be like worth it. But also, it's like the first, like crack in 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 the door of you know just opening that that door a little bit, getting the customer to understand that there's there's economic value for them in solar. This is one easy way for them to do it. It's just like sort of guaranteed savings, right? And it's like, mm. you know, it's almost always like, what's the catch? Like the conversation yeah. ends up there, and yeah. so we have to sort of demystify that. Like, eh, you know, the state created an incentive. The only way we can access our revenue is by having a subscriber, they wanted to, you know, push the democratization of solar across the state. That's how like New York approached it and Massachusetts and others. And, and that's like the benefit, that's the, the purpose of community solar um, is to make it something that the community benefits from. So they made it easy and it's almost like too good to be true. So that's like a funny, like objection that we run into sometimes, but that is worth it to us because it starts the solar conversation. There's an orchard and cidery and winery at upstate New York outside of Buffalo. That's a customer of ours. They were a long time Brown Power retail electricity customer from our first acquired company, U.S. Energy Partners that we bought in 21 out of Buffalo. And then we subscribed them to a community solar array nearby that we were managing. 
And then we signed a behind-the-meter PPA, and now we're developing an on-site solar array for them. And we're putting in four EV charging stations. So, like, I know I sound like I'm nuts, but, like, that's yet another product that we offer. Um, I'm not, like, at the point totally where I'm, like, you know, um, making that a whole new business line. But that is a, a different business that people are in, and we are now also offering it, at least in this one case, just to test the waters. They wanted it to make, you know, to as part of the package for them. Um, they were able to value the non-monetary benefits of hosting solar in a way that made the economics, which were relatively like modest, um, matter less. And so part of that was the EV charging stations. And so we're able to fit that in economically. I'm with That's you. a good example of a good journey that someone's gone on with us over the yeah. past couple of years. Yeah. It's almost like a product ladder of sorts, right? Start with, with one product, customer sees value, they go to the next one, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Let's spend a few minutes, maybe three or four minutes on you mix in this roll-up strategy a few times. I think some folks get that. Other folks don't appreciate what that really means. Uh, and then we'll switch to to Gabe uh, versus just Catalyst Power. Does that sound good? It's your show, man. Um, <laughs> so Yes, yes, it does. Uh-huh. So like we talked about, the retail electricity markets just broadly are really complicated. And when they first deregulated, anyone who could like sell a pencil and didn't know the difference between a kilowatt and a megawatt, you know, like started a retail energy business and deregulated markets in the Northeast. And I was actually at the time I was trading electricity at Semper trading in Connecticut. And I was getting these requests to provide hedges to these new participants who just didn't know their ass from their elbow and it was driving me nuts. And it was very clear to me that like there's a whole new suite of participants in the power business that doesn't know how to use the market to meet a business need. At the same time, renewable developers were showing up also with their hedging needs, 10-year, 20-year power offtake agreements. And they also didn't know how to use that market, this really complicated wholesale power market to meet their business need. So I left trading, which was sort of quasi-entrepreneurial, but you know, not, not exactly. I, I remember a guy I used to work with described it as like a mall. We all have like our stall at the mall with our own little p <laughs> It was a little more of an integrated business, but um, at least that particular trade floor was a cool place to work at the beginning of my career. Um, but I, I left and I started GP Energy Management to provide like advice, physical logistics, market access services, and, you know, front, middle, and back office, like services as if we were the, the trade floor on behalf of others for these two natural participants, both upstream generators and downstream retail energy suppliers. And I, in that business, you know, got to meet everybody and saw the good, the bad, and the ugly all over the retail energy world. And there are some crazy people in the retail energy world. <laughs> and not to say that the distributed generation and renewables world is all that same either, but the retail energy world attracts a lot of sales-focused people who, you know, move quick and um, didn't know a lot about, you know, the uh, really complicated electricity markets. And so I provided this, you know, service to them and built a business around that contracted revenue stream and then marketed renewables on the upstream side for generators to help to make their projects financeable. And so that was like sort of my balance between like my brown power, like service platform and gas service platform with my, you know, my support of the renewables sector. And that's just how I did those two things. I balanced those two things before my last business, um, which I sold in 2016 and then ultimately exited in 2019. Um, and I got, got started on Catalyst then. Uh, and, I, you know, we have that balance here, right? Like we start with the brown power. But yeah, in any event, like I, I saw this extremely segmented and very fragmented marketplace. Lots of hyper-regional participants that, you know, couldn't really quite get to scale, but they owned a very valuable asset that they were not monetizing Mm. And that was to the detriment of the environment and to their customers, which is that supply relationship with the customer. They're the supplier of record. They're the trusted advisor to that customer. 
if they're not the broker, and if it's the broker, then they have a one step removal from the trusted advisor of that customer. And they're in a position to take advantage of assets that peak with peak demand economically and share that value with the customer if they adopted and they just sort of like realized that the distributed assets had value to them as a retail supplier. It wasn't just reducing their volume that they sold. And the lack of sophistication in that marketplace, you know, meant a lot of these folks didn't really pick up on that. And so I really wanted to focus on that when I got out of my last business. That's what, that's one of the reasons why I exited and I wanted to get back to the principal side of the market as well. I didn't, you know, advising is nice, but every customer is also your boss and that can get old after a while. A very important statement there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so now, you know, I, I was able to get back to the principal side of the market, able to balance the brown power, provision of brown power with adoption of renewables, but I needed to get to customers. And so I found financial backing and BP Energy Partners out of Dallas. We closed funding in like the throes of COVID in like June of 20, which was crazy. Did everything remotely. We met once before the lockdown. Oh, wow. Um, did everything else via Zoom. It was uh, dicey to say the least. <laughs> but, you know, the strategy of, you know, buying these hyper-regional players and, you know, being good at integrating them into like one operational retail energy platform, which was we spent like our initial phase of the business focused on. And then had like a good critical mass of revenue and customers to start cross-marketing these other things to. That was the strategy always. And, you know, now we're at this point of our life cycle, just about three years in, we are, we're seeing that bear fruit and we're like signing solar deals that customers are agreeing to host. And almost, no, not almost all of them were an existing relationship from the supply perspective first. Now, our data points are still a little light there to say that this is absolutely like a statistical trend that I can point to, but, you know, it makes sense. It, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, um, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. You built the trust, right? You built the trust over a number of, uh, of years, oftentimes. And so they were open for more ways for you to create value for them. Yeah. Let's switch, Gabe, a little, little, little broader here. Tell us about a, a belief, a strong belief you have, probably outside of work, certainly outside of Catalyst Power, which has influenced maybe why you started Catalyst or how you run it, the culture you're creating, the vision you'll have, et cetera. Yeah, I did a lot of uh, hiking and backpacking and stuff growing up. And there's a big mantra in that community and signs at every trailhead that, you know, um, that say, you know, leave it better than you found it. Um, you know, it's, that's a very important mantra to me personally. Um, and so I'd, I have tried to find ways to inject more good than I receive and uh, to try to leave things better than I found them. Mm. And I didn't know how I was going to do that necessarily. Uh, when I was like young, I knew that I'd been the beneficiary of others who had done that. I knew that my parents, you know, taught me that that was an important thing that we, we should do as, as human beings. And as I've grown up and had my own family, like I, I, you know, the, the impetus to want to do that is just stronger and stronger every day. But I thought like as a, you know, uh, you know, when I was younger, I'm going to find a way to make a lot of money and then I'm going to give a lot of it away. Um, and that'll be how I lead things better than I found them. Mm. At some point in my journey, I, I found that I had like a whole suite of technical skills and like a really specialized knowledge in something that was complicated. And the climate change started to become something that was not like esoteric, but like it was, it was real and we were observing it and, you know, when I started to, to realize that I could use my specialized knowledge to benefit the environment and I could make a living doing that and not, 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 not a bad one. In fact, maybe enough that I could 
also give back in that way as well. Yeah. And that to me became like the like the holy grail. That was like fucking best thing I could do would be to make money doing good and then give that mo- some of that money away to do more good. And then also teach my kids that if you pick hard problems, the 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 answers to unlock really good things, the outsized benefits aren't just monetary. Uh, they can be, and that that ain't so bad because you could use that to compound your good effort. Mm. But uh, you know, it's to be able to find all of those categories of good from from one effort to me is like uh, it's very uplifting, and it's what I it, that's a mantra. Yeah, I, I think it's really well said, and totally agree. I recall when I was in private equity, we were considering launching a an environmental hedge fund product, and um, here I was commuting on the bus and reading kind of a classic in the hedge fund space, more money than God. And I I recall some of my fellow passengers who certainly lean very, very liberal. Like, man, Chris, you totally sold out. I was like, hold up, hold up, right? You can use hedge funds as a tool for good, not just making a boatload of money to give away. Well, speaking of backpacking, hopefully uh, I'll be going on my, my first backpacking trip since our kids were very young with some friends this this weekend, if if my friend's son who just got COVID doesn't pass it to my friend. So, and I'm like, holy shit. I wanted to make sure we're delivering on the four little words here. So I just had to had to throw that in there to the bat and say cleaner than than usual. Very but way clean. Way clean. Oh, sorry. How about some uh some habits? What are some habits uh Gabe daily, weekly, et cetera, that keep you healthy, sane, and focused at the a busy CEO. You just made me think of uh, something I did once. I get asked to speak at conferences sometimes because I'm willing to say things that are like incendiary. And I, I once <laughs> said that Burke should grow a pair to like <laughs> a, a room full of like a thousand people or something at a uh-huh. the executive conference. That was pretty funny. Wow. So that stood out. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, sorry, ask your, your question one more time. Habits? It's hard to focus on that question with that kind of memory. Uh, to, <laughs> that it was, um, uh, tell us some habits or routines that keep you healthy, sane, and focused uh, on the entrepreneur journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of hobbies. And I think there's a, a saying I, I, I got from a, you know, from a, a close friend, um, you can't pour from an empty cup. And so I think it's really important that if you want to, you know, deliver good for your family, for, you know, those around you, the people you care about in the world, you have to fill up your cup. So you got to figure out what that is. For me, it's like a lot of variety. I have a lot of hobbies. I play a bunch of instruments. I like to exercise in a bunch of different ways. I, you know, I just cut my hand before we got on the call in my garden outside. I, I do a lot of woodworking. I, I think it's like important to do these things that for me anyway, to fill my cup, that should be different for everybody. But, and, you know, and so for me, it's like a high variety of things, but I think like, like the key is like the, Fill your cup. I mean, and and like I do that, you know, by reading and drawing and woodworking and coaching my kids in their sports and, you know, making sure that like my wife and I get out on our own and, you know, I, I distance run, I, I like to ruck and, and hike in the woods. And I, I think that like all of those things are the, the habits that I have formed, which is really not, not sitting still ever. And I think they all help me with work um, and they help me to to create more good and leave things uh, better than I found them. Well, I think listeners will appreciate with the list as long as that, it must be true you never sit still. 
I, I don't sleep a lot is the other challenge. Um, yeah. or, or maybe, or maybe that's a superpower. I, I don't know, but I'm good on like four and a half hours. So that's, uh, four and a half. Well, that helps. That sounds like a follow on conversation, not recorded, Gabe. Uh, <laughs> and intervention. Um, <laughs> speaking of cutting your hand gardening, I, I was talking with one of the, the CEOs in our, our peer group program once, and I was also gardening, pruning. And then I didn't communicate this on the phone call, but I had, I had nicked a part of my finger off and was bleeding profusely. So I'm like, I'm like uh, holding my finger with, with toilet paper above my head, above my heart, finishing this CEO call. I was like, honey, I think I'm going to go to the urgent care. Um, what's wrong? Oh, wow. W would you please go right now? You need to go to the urgent care. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, when I was first working on uh, sort of like the concept for Catalyst, it was after I'd exited my last business and I, you know, had for the first time in a very long time, really nothing like to do for work uh, yet. And my now COO um, was a former client of mine at that time. He still his little company. And I decided to remodel a bathroom in this gap of time that I had. Um, and so I had to keep asking him to hold while I like cut something or like smash tile or whatever. <laughs> I still do that to people on the phone all the time. Like you're, you're lucky you got me sitting still here. Yeah. Because um, I'd be outside, you know, running a circular saw or doing something like that. Wonderful. Mid-conversation. Mid uh, let's see. How about as a maybe final question, how about some uh, some books or podcasts, uh, Gabe, that you might recommend listeners pick up? So I, you know, I, I want you. Know, I, I prepared a little bit for this, and I had written down a couple of book titles. But I actually think there's one that I didn't write down that I that I, I want to bring up. That's that's a really special book to me. Is the, the Little Prince by Antoine de Saint Exupéry. I remember reading that as a sophomore in high school and realizing that it was very important to maintain a childlike element to the way you approach the world and to kind of like get over yourself. And now I can, I can like fast forward to like the books I've read in the last couple of years that all sort of like are, are on a similar theme, which is like, you know, around getting over yourself a little bit and, and re realizing that we're, uh, the sense of self is, uh, is, is something that's hard to wrap our heads around. Mm. Um, you know, uh, this book, the comfort crisis, you know, sort of, you know, focused around like longevity and, finds other other avenues that people have, you know, gotten lifelong and life extending benefits from that are not just physical, um, like meditation. Mm. Um, and then I went down like that road and read 10% Happier as a very approachable, you know, introduction to practical meditation. Something I'd done for a long time and since younger and before I read that book, but I liked its its approach to it. And I, I've recommended it to a lot of people that I that I work with actually of late. And um, uh, I think it, you know, the, the comfort crisis is one that, that just goes in so many different directions. Uh, it's by um, uh, by Michael Easter, um, and uh, I think that weaving in this like month long caribou hunt in every other chapter associated with delving into some other thing that people do that gets them outside their comfort zone that has like these big benefits for their lives, I think is is very valuable for everyone to, to recognize and, and doing hard things is, is one of the, one of the chapters, like, and, and I, I been doing that my whole life. Like I'm a, I'm a wrestler. Like I picked that cause I have a screw loose and that's really hard. And, you know, I was better at, you know, at English and, and, and I, then I decided to go to engineering school cause that was really hard. And I, I just found that I've gotten these like benefits from doing hard things that are like, you know, well beyond just like the direct benefit of doing it. And there's a whole chapter in this book about how like that could actually help you slow time down you can sort of return to that experience. You can talk about it. You can 
relive it in ways that um, allows time to slow a little bit for you. And that that's a form of longevity, you know, that you can measure yourself. In any event, those are those are a couple of books that I, I think a lot of people should read or reread. Certainly The Little Prince, I hope everybody had exposure to as a kid, but yeah. that's what I've read with each of my kids. And um, I get a real benefit from them every time. It's a great list. The uh, the do hard things uh, has come up in our in our CEO peer groups a lot. In fact, uh, this guy Charlie Dimler, CEO at Checkerspot, as a big fan of that of that phrase. That's kind of the culture for you know for his company. And actually, I was thinking about this this backpacking trip, which may or may not happen. I just recently realized that the first the first afternoon is six miles, and we climb four thousand two hundred feet, and <laughs> With, you know, 30, 30 pounds on our back. And, you know, I'm not 25. And my my 15-year-old, who probably listens to a fair amount of David Goggins, some of you may know that that name, former Navy SEAL, he's like, well, if you're going to hike, it should be a hard hike. Otherwise, why do it? And I was like, okay, okay, yes. I'm, my, my job here is done, folks. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I turned 40 a month ago today. Uh-huh. And... It's another example of my screw loose nature. I, I decided I would run a 20 mile trail run on my birthday and then host like 40 people for a party afterwards and barbecue for them all. What a combo. Grill, grill for them all. I, I, I got to get that right. You from North Carolina would say barbecue is kind of food, right? Not up for, I've been corrected on that before. And uh, yeah, I had never run that far before. So that was new, but oh. yeah, now I'm hooked. So. Well, that, that's a fun place to, to wrap. Uh, Gabe. Uh, anyway, look, fun to see the evolution, the origin, uh, where, where you're all going with three businesses, maybe to become, you know, four businesses into one turnkey provider for this mid-market CNI uh, customers in the Northeast. Hey, look, man, rooting for your all success at uh, Catalyst Power. Talk to Thank you. This was great. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, and join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all y'all. Take care.